0: Hi, and welcome to the Murder and Mystery Podcast. I'm your host, Summer. Lisa is no longer going to be one of our full-time co-hosts. Unfortunately, she has too much going on right now with their kids being homeschooled, and it was just too much for her to be a full-time co-host, which, you know, I understand that. So, I'm going to be on my own hosting this show. So I hope you still enjoy it as much as I enjoy doing it. And I hope you continue to listen. Hopefully I'm going to be bringing some more things on and I have some big plans for upcoming episodes and I hope you enjoy them. But happy October. This is one of my favorite times of the year. You know, the air is starting to get a chill, and the leaves are changing colors. Halloween decorations are going up, and the best part of all is the scary movies and shows and just that spookiness in the air right now. I absolutely love this Halloween time and wish that it could be all year round. I just love this spooky atmosphere. And so... I wanted to, st- to spend this month starting to explore some of the stories that inspired the movies that I love and some of the television shows and things that are on this time of year that I just really love and that make this time of year special for me and hopefully some that you really love. So I'm going to bring you the true stories behind the movies. Today I want to start with the murder of Elise Pauler. So it was really an interesting one. I had never heard of this one. But it happened on July 22nd, 1995 when 15-year-old Elise Pauler of Arroyo Grande, California was just sitting at home with her parents. It was a normal evening. It was the middle of summer. She'd been watching TV with her parents and the phone rings. She goes and answers it and comes back and sits down with her parents for a few minutes and then gets up and says she's going to bed. This was pretty normal for her and she goes into her bedroom and plumps up the covers and kind of messes around in her room for a few minutes and then she sneaks out the window. She does this a lot and She's gone for a few hours, and then she comes back. Her parents are none the wiser. She's never really gotten caught, so it's really not a big deal. She heads to a eucalyptus grove not far from her house where she meets three local boys. Elise has been hanging out with these boys over the summer. They are a couple of guys that she had met previously. Jacob Delleschmutt who she met at a community recovery center she had undergone treatment for drugs and alcohol there uh, previously and so she had met jacob while she was in that program and then joseph fiorella she had met him at school and then there was royce case who was a friend of jacob and joseph she didn't really know royce Um, But he had been hanging out with these two boys and had joined their death metal band, Hatred. So these boys were kind of edgy and hardcore. They were fun. And she was pretty and popular. And they liked to hang around her because she was pretty and popular. So they supplied her with drugs and she hung out with them and was the pretty girl that they liked to be around, even if it was only in a eucalyptus grove every once in a while. So Elise was known as being pretty and lively and friendly. She wanted to be an actress. Uh, she was in theater at school and was active in sports. She also went to church with her parents and was pretty active in church. She was known as being a good girl. And she lived in Arroyo Grande City, which was a very small town of about 14,000 people. And so she got bored sometimes. When she was bored, she hung out with Jacob and Joseph and whatever friends they had along that was in their band at that point. Jacob and Joseph's band was just a local garage band. They had dreams of making it big, but, you know, they weren't successful by any means at this point, point. and so the lure was that they had a band, and so she was the girl that hung out with the band every once in a while, and they supplied her with drugs because she was pretty and would hang out with them and show them attention. So that night, Jacob, Joseph, and Royce lured Elise from her home with the promise of weed. She met them in a spot not far from her house, and she's relaxing and enjoying the evening with her friends. You know, it was a nice night, and she's smoking and drinking and getting high, and she's not really noticing that the guys aren't, enjoying this as much as she is you know she's cracking jokes and you know being cute and she's lost in her own little world over here and not noticing that they're kind of jumpy and suddenly Jacob walks up behind her and wraps his belt around her neck Royce lunges at her and holds her down And Joseph begins to stab her in the neck. They took turns stabbing her a total of 12 times in the neck while she prayed and screamed for her mother. Now, she is out in this eucalyptus grove, not far from her house, but far enough away from everybody that nobody could hear her. When she didn't die fast enough they began stomping on her neck and the coroner later said that none of the cuts that they made were fatal so she slowly bled out so they weren't cutting her deep enough they never hit her artery and she laid there and prayed and cried for her mom until she bled out from the cuts that they made after she died and they waited until she bled out, they each took turns having sex with her body and then they hid her body in the grove and left. Each of the boys would return to her body several times over the next few weeks and had sex with the body. They told other people, well, Joseph and Jacob, told other people what they had done, but no one actually took them seriously. Even though Elise was missing, nobody took these boys seriously that they had actually done something to this girl because they knew that she was a friend of theirs and they knew that they had talked about some of this stuff before. They didn't believe that they had actually done something and they never said, this is where we did this. This had actually been a second attempt to kill Elise. Earlier in the summer, Jacob and Joseph had recruited a different friend to try and help them kill her. At this point, they had lured Elise to a ravine where they had sat around and had been drinking and smoking, and this friend that they had had accidentally slid over the edge of course they had set this all up before they had practiced this he knew exactly where to go over the edge and he wasn't hurt or anything and they also knew that there was a path not far from where he went over and knew that Elise would find this path so while Elise finds this path to go and help him the other two, Jacob and Joseph, stand at the top of the ravine looking down, yelling for their friend. When she gets down over to where she can't see them, they toss a knife down to their friend. When she gets down to him, she goes to help him. He grabs her and puts her, his arm around her neck and he's holding the knife and they start chanting, do it. At that point, this friend loses his nerve, and so they all start laughing and act like this is a joke so that she doesn't know that they were really planning to kill her. Elise laughs it off and believes that they were all joking and that this was meant to scare her, and she never reports this. In fact, she continues to hang out with these boys after they had done this to her, She treats this like it was a joke. So for the next few months, they trying to plan her murder and they continue to, you know, write their music and play their music and look for another person to bring into their band who will help them kill her. And that's when they find Royce Casey. However, they didn't realize that this person that's going to help them that they recruit is actually going to be their downfall. You see, eight months after Elise was brutally murdered, Royce says he turns to Christianity. And he confesses to the murder and leads police to the grove where the badly decomposed body of Elise Peller lays hidden. He states that... He becomes religious and he starts pulling away from Jacob and Joseph. And this makes him afraid. uh, Because these two boys have made it clear that they're going to kill again. And some of the lyrics of one of the songs that they wrote says that if you aren't with us, then you may no longer exist. Because he's pulled away and he helped in the first murder, he's afraid that they are going to kill him next he may be the next sacrifice that they make for their band so this is really the reason that he goes and confesses not because he suddenly feels like it's the right thing to do and he needs to confess this to get it off of his soul so exactly why did these boys kill elise So, the boys said that they did this because they needed a sacrifice for their band, and Elise was the perfect sacrifice. They believed that if they sacrificed a beautiful blonde virgin to Satan, they would become professional musicians, and their band would become famous. Well, that didn't happen. (laughs) So, this explains why they didn't rape her in all of those times that they hung out with her. All those times that they gave her alcohol and they gave her drugs and everything. So, this explains why when they were stabbing her, they didn't rape her until after she was dead. However, it was also argued that Jacob was obsessed with Elise and that although she would hang out with him sometimes, she was not interested in him at all romantically. That he was somebody who would give her drugs and alcohol and that he was this kind of edgy, dangerous friend That gave her this thrill to hang out with when she was bored but he was that person that she wouldn't tell anybody that she liked to hang around with she wouldn't tell anybody that he was her friend so she didn't hang around with him at school or with her other friends you know he was that hush-hush friend and she definitely was not interested in dating him so that was also said to be part of the motive for him to kill her. Elisa's parents, David and Lisanne Pauler, claimed the heavy metal band Slayer was partially responsible for their daughter's death because they gave instructions on how to stalk, torture, rape, and kill minors. They say that Jacob, Joseph, and Royce were obsessed with Slayer and that their band was modeled after Slayer's band and that their lyrics were modeled after Slayer's lyrics and that this was the reason that they had killed their daughter. They even had a lawsuit against the band Slayer But this was thrown out by two different judges, and these judges said that although the band's lyrics may be graphic, and although they may not be suitable for minors, they certainly were not the reason that their daughter was murdered. So, Elise's murder was the inspiration for the 2009 horror movie, Jennifer's Body. If you're unfamiliar with this movie and you would like to see this movie before you hear anything about it, turn off this podcast right now and go watch the movie. Okay, so if you want to know a little bit about this movie and you haven't seen this, it is about a high school cheerleader played by Megan Fox who is possessed by a demon and kills her male classmates. Her nerdy friend, played by Amanda Seyfried, is trying to stop this demon that's inside her friend before her friend actually kills her boyfriend, Amanda Seyfried's boyfriend. The movie is not really scary. It's more of a campy kind of high schooly movie, it, but it has a Panic at the Disco song. Which, you know, Panic! at the Disco is awesome. And so it's worth it just to hear that song at the end of the credits. But it was really, it was a good movie. It's definitely worth a watch. And I didn't know that there was an actual murder that had inspired this. So if you get a chance, watch that movie. And remember Elise and... That her murder had actually inspired this movie so I have one more story for you today and this one is also a horror movie that is a true story that inspired a movie actually it inspired three movies this one is a favorite of mine Um, I love these movies I love this couple that actually investigated this. And I'm going to be doing other stories by them. Ed and Lorraine Warren. They were awesome. There is a lot of controversy about them. Whether or not what they did was true. And we might get into some of that and look at some of that. Because I have questions as well. But today, we are going to talk about Annabelle. Yes, so there are three Annabelle movies that is inspired by this supposedly true story of the Annabelle doll, and honestly, the Annabelle story only has a little bit to do with these three movies. So what is true in these movies and what isn't? So dolls are pretty scary anyway. They can be really creepy. I love dolls, especially haunted dolls. That can be really awesome. I would love to have a haunted doll just to see what it's like and what it does. But dolls can be pretty creepy when you think about it and when you look at them, especially when you look at it as an adult and you see these things that look like people and they don't really move or talk, or I guess some of them do talk, but it can be kind of creepy when you're looking at them and then you think about what if they do move, what if they do do something out of the ordinary, something that they shouldn't do. And so there's been a lot of horror movies and stories and things about possessed dolls. This is one of them. If you've seen the Annabelle movies, then you know that these movies are really creepy, scary, and they're all about this porcelain doll Let's look at the real Annabelle and what really happened. Let's start at the beginning of the story. It starts in 1971 when a woman walks into a shop and comes out with an adorable three-foot raggedy Ann doll. Yes, a raggedy Ann doll. Annabelle was not this porcelain, creepy-looking doll. Annabelle was a cute Raggedy Ann doll. I had a Raggedy Ann doll when I was a kid. I didn't have a three-foot Raggedy Ann doll. I would have loved a three-foot Raggedy Ann doll. I just had one of those little ones. In fact, I had Raggedy Ann and Andy and I loved those dolls when I was a kid. I think they're absolutely adorable and she bought this doll for her daughter Donna for her 28th birthday. Thinking about that, that's kind of an odd birthday present for a 28-year-old, even in 1971. But she bought this for her daughter, and her daughter absolutely loved it. She thought this was the perfect addition for her small apartment that she shared with her roommate, Angie. See, Donna and Angie were both nurses at Hartford Hospital, And they lived in this two-bedroom apartment. It was a really small apartment, but it was close to the hospital. It was affordable. They really weren't in the apartment much, you know. They both worked the day shift. They rode to and from the apartment together. They basically were in the apartment to sleep and eat, and that was really it. They didn't spend a lot of time there. And so, the, like I said, the apartment was small. They felt like the doll would brighten up the place. Angie actually fell in love with the doll too when Donna brought it home. So Donna brought this doll home. She showed it to Angie. Angie loved it. She took it to her bedroom. And she put it on her bed and she slept with the doll. But after the first night, she noticed something really strange she slept with it that night and the next morning she made up her bed and she went to work and she came home and the doll was in a different position than what she remembered leaving it in but it was just a small change and she thought well maybe she'd bumped it you know she just kind of bumped it as she was getting ready no big deal so after a few few more days of noticing that she would put the doll in one place and then she would come back and it would be in a different position it wasn't really scaring her it was just kind of odd and she didn't have an explanation for it and she was kind of paying attention at this point so after a few days uh, she took the doll in the kitchen and she joked that Raggedy Ann was going to have breakfast with them So she placed the doll in the chair like it was a child. They went about making their breakfast and they sat there and Raggedy Ann sat in the chair and it was just kind of a joke. But the next day, Donna did the same thing and she brought the doll in and sat it in the chair and they went about making their breakfast and there was no joke made. There was nothing said. You know, the first day, it was kind of a, Ha ha, Raggedy Ann's going to have breakfast with us. But this time, it was just, she's here. So this next day, she brought the doll in, and she sat the doll down, and they started fixing their breakfast, and they sat down to eat their breakfast as though the doll was a normal guest. Like she was just another person at the table. And that's when they noticed something really strange. The doll had her arms on the arm of the chair. But Donna didn't remember positioning her like that. This is a rag doll. And when you put a rag doll in the chair, you know, her arms are just going to flop. And chances of bolted for her arms flopping perfectly on the arms of the chair and sitting like that is not real likely they would need to be positioned like that and Donna didn't remember doing that so it was really strange and they both commented on how strange that was but it didn't scare them it was just something else that they talked about later along with the different positions that the doll had changed in Donna's room. Now, the third morning, when Donna brought the doll into the kitchen, they both started talking to the doll like she was a real person. They sat the doll down and they sat down to eat breakfast, and they started talking to this doll like she was really another person at the table. And They both watched in amazement as the doll raised both of her arms up and placed them on the table. This confirmed their suspicions that there really was something going on with this doll. They had a haunted doll. This did not scare them. They did not run out of the apartment screaming. They actually got really excited. This was something that they were wanting. Angie knew a friend who knew a psychic. A medium. So she asked this medium to come into the home and see if they could connect with this doll and find out what the spirit was that was connected to this doll so that they could talk to her. The medium told them that it was the spirit of a six year old girl named Annabelle. Annabelle had been killed in a car accident just outside their apartment. And Annabelle wanted to stay with them. The women were able to confirm that there was a child named Annabelle that was killed in the area in a car accident. And the child's name had been Annabelle Higgins. So they agreed to have this doll stay with them, this child stay with them. The medium told them that the little girl loved staying with them. That she wanted them to love her and to welcome her into their home. And they agreed to that. And so they did. And this is when the real activity started. It started small with just taps and knocks. And these were noises that they hadn't heard before. Because they had lived in this apartment for a while before getting the doll. And they had never heard these kinds of noises before. Annabelle continued changing positions and eventually she started changing locations. So they would leave her in the living room and come home, and she would be in the bedroom or in the kitchen. And they thought this was cute. They enjoyed guessing where Annabelle would be when they got home. It became a game they would play. They would, you know, talk to her, they would take her everywhere they went in the house with them you know, when they were home. She sat at the table with them when they ate. She sat in the living room with them when they watched TV. She would sleep with Donna and then of the mornings, Donna would bring her into the living room so that she could be in the living room during the day and then they would play the guessing game on their way home and try to guess where Annabelle would be in the house when they came home. Eventually, Annabelle started meeting them at the door and was actually standing. Yes, this rag doll was standing on her two legs, on her own two legs, when they came home. But still, the two women weren't afraid. This doll was openly moving all over the house, was standing on her own two legs, and they weren't Afraid of what was going on. Now Angie was engaged to a man named Lou. And Lou did not believe anything that they were saying. He thought this whole thing was a bunch bull. He thought that they were crazy. And he told them that he didn't believe anything that they said. But he did get a very creepy vibe from this doll. He thought this doll was evil, and he thought they needed to get rid of this doll. In fact, he told them that they needed to burn this doll, that she needed to be gone completely, because when he was around, Annabelle didn't move. She didn't do any of her tricks when he was around at that point, but she would sit in the room with him, and he felt creeped out by this doll. And so, he just, he didn't like this doll. So, around this time, Donna and Angie started finding notes in their apartment. And these notes were written on parchment paper. But there was no parchment paper of this type in their house. And the words on this parchment paper were things like, help me, and help Lou, so this started to scare them a little bit because how would a cute little six-year-old girl and a cute snuggly little doll get paper that was not in the house for one thing and why would this little girl be writing notes like this they they kind of understood Lou being creeped out by a doll that they're saying is moving and doing all these things because you know some people would think that's creepy but writing these kind of notes on paper that didn't exist in the house that was kind of scary. So then one afternoon Lou was in Donna and Angie's apartment and he fell asleep. Annabelle was sitting on a chair In the same room as him, not far from him. He was having a nightmare that Annabelle was strangling him. He woke up suddenly and he had marks on his throat that looked like somebody had been strangling him. So he had marks around his neck. He also had seven slashes that appeared across his body like scratch marks. And while he's sitting there, and he can't believe that he has these marks that just suddenly appeared on his body, he watches a huge chair roll across the floor. Pictures start falling off the wall and breaking. Lights start flashing off and on, and bangs start being heard. The whole apartment's going crazy. And now Angie and Donna are really scared this is not a six-year-old girl they are convinced this is something evil and lou was right so they call a local catholic church who in turn calls ed and lorraine warren and they go to investigate the home lorraine walks in and looks at annabelle and she immediately sees it i believe this is even shown in the movie she looks at the doll and she sees The doll standing there with the demon behind it holding it. And this image kind of has always stayed with me of this demon holding this doll. Manipulating this doll like, you know, a child or somebody, you know, playing dolls would manipulate the doll to make it move. That's the way that this demon was using this doll to make it move and, you know, make it do the things that it was doing to get to get Donna and Angie to try and open up to it not just to believe that it was a little girl and you know welcome it into the home it was trying to get Angie and Donna to open up to this demon so that one of them would be open enough to let the demon possess them instead of just possessing this doll so the Warrens performed an exorcism on the apartment on Donna Angie and Lou to break the hold that the demon has on them and to revoke the invitation that Donna and Angie had given when they had invited that sweet little girl spirit of Annabelle Higgins the six-year-old girl who died tragically near their apartment. They revoked that invitation. So this demon didn't have the invitation into their home. They broke the tie that this demon had on these women and the tie that the demon had on Lou at that point. And they took the doll back to their museum and they, where they ended up putting her in a protective case. But Annabelle's story doesn't end there. In fact, it's actually really just getting started. That whole first part of Annabelle's story was really just like this little blurb. It's the way that The Conjuring started. If you remember that movie, Annabelle was just a little bitty piece of The Conjuring universe And then it became its own trilogy of movies inside the Conjuring universe. And so it was just this little bitty opening piece. And introduced the doll and Ed and Lorraine Warren. And then they went on to investigate this other case. But it was a good enough story that they blew it up and you know, made it into this whole big thing with all these different movies. But there was so much more that did happen and they could have extended this out and made this a full movie or possibly two movies to continue this story because that first part could have been a whole movie, I guess. But definitely they overdid Annabelle as Hollywood tends to do. However, Annabelle's tricks continued after she left Donna and Angie. Up to this point, the demon was possessing this cute little rag doll and was performing parlor tricks. I mean, she was repositioning herself, she did some moving from room to room, she manifested some paper, wrote some notes, she scratched a man she really hadn't done a whole lot. So Ed and Lorraine Warren took Annabelle and buckled her in the back seat of their car. They were concerned that the doll might cause some problems on the way home. So they wanted to avoid highways and they took the back roads because they were afraid that Annabelle would cause accidents if they took the highway where a lot of traffic was on the way home Lorraine claimed the brakes kept stalling and failing and so they were nearly in an accident a couple times. So Ed took out some holy water and splashed holy water on the doll and the problems stopped and they were able to get home safely. And once they were there they didn't have a place at that point to put Annabelle because they weren't really prepared. They had just heard and they went out investigate and knew we have to get this doll out of here it was just kind of a spur of the moment they didn't have the preparation and the safe place to put her so they put her in Ed's study they locked her in the study they claimed at first they saw her levitate a few times and then she started moving around the house kind of like she did with Donna and Angie you know she would be in the study locked door And nobody would be home, and then they would come home and find her in the kitchen, in the living room, just moving around different parts of the house. Now, you have to remember, at this time, Ed and Lorraine also had a little girl. They had Judy, who was a child at this time and stuff so they had to try and keep annabelle away from judy so they had a special glass case made and i believe that pieces of this case did come from a church inside this case is inscribed with the lord's prayer and the prayer of saint michael and periodically ed would say a binding prayer over the case to ensure that the doll and entity stayed bound and locked inside now that Ed and Lorraine are both gone I believe Tony Spera Ed's son-in-law Judy's husband says this same prayer to keep this doll bound he has been trained by Ed they also have a priest come to do a blessing in the museum but shortly after this happened you know Annabelle continues even in this protected case with these prayers and everything in it. Even though she's bound and she's locked in this case. She continues to wreak havoc. So just being brought into the Warren's house. And levitating and moving through their house wasn't the end of her reign of terror. She was put in this case, the special case with prayers. And she continues to do this shortly after she came into the Warren's house a priest had heard about her and wanted to see her he comes to the Warren's and he comes in with this new car and he's showing Ed his new car he's been driving around showing everybody and then he wants to go see this possessed doll this demon possessed doll that he's heard so much about He goes into the museum and he's looking at it and he reaches over, he opens the glass case and he picks up the doll and he remarks, God is more powerful than the devil. And he throws Annabelle across the room. Ed watches the priest and turns and looks at him and says, yes, God is more powerful than millions of devils, but you aren't. And with that, he picks up Annabelle. He puts her back in the case and he locks her up. An hour later, the priest was driving in this brand new car that he loves so much. And he's been showing off to everybody. And he's driving this car that he loves down Route 81. He loses control of the car. His car, his beloved car, is hit by a semi-truck. And this brand new car is torn in half. Now, the priest lived through this accident, but he says that the last thing he sees in his rearview mirror is Annabelle. So it was like she was mocking him, and she's saying, You know, you better be careful and watch who you're dealing with. His life was spared. He was fine, but his new car was destroyed. Later, on, I don't know a date, there was no date given, and there was no name given. So in all of these incidents, there's actually no name given to get actual details. There was a homicide detective that was working with Ed. Ed often worked with the police on different cases and stuff. So this homicide detective had came over and was talking through this case with Ed And when they'd finished their business, he asked if he could get a tour of the museum. So Ed says yes and takes him in. And they're doing this tour. But Ed noticed from the time that they walked in, the detective couldn't take his eyes off Annabelle. It was like he was drawn to Annabelle. And even as Ed's given him a tour and showing him all these other things, he keeps looking over at Annabelle. Well, Ed gets a phone call in the middle of this tour. Lorraine comes and gets him he has to leave the museum and go back in the house to take this phone call because obviously there's no cell phones at this time I I'm not sure if this is the 70s or if it's the early 80s but it's somewhere in there and so he steps away goes into the kitchen for a few minutes to take this phone call and he says it's not 10 minutes later that he sees the detective run out of the museum The last thing Ed had told him before he walked out was do not touch anything. And this guy is running out of the museum and he knows something's up, he's touched something. So Ed gets off the phone really quick and goes out to see what happened. And the detective tells him that he just couldn't help it. He hadn't been able to take his eyes off Annabelle from the moment he walked in the room, she was calling to him, he had to. He had to pick up Annabelle. It scared him so badly he didn't say what it was that had scared him so badly when he did this, but something scared him so badly when he picked up Annabelle that he had to get out of that museum. And in his rush to get out, he knocked over a bunch of stuff in the museum. He He never said what it was, but this was a life-changing experience. Two months later, the officer resigned from the police department. So the last really major incident with Annabelle involves a group of college students who went to the museum in the 80s. In this group of college students, there was a man, and he was there with his girlfriend, who walked up to Annabelle, walked up to the case, and said, this is a bunch of bullshit. And he began to knock on Annabelle's case. And then he began to trash talk Annabelle, kind of, I don't know, tease the spirit and try to coerce the demon to do something. He finally dares the doll to put slashes on him. Well, when he says this, Ed goes over and tells him to get out of the museum. He needs to leave. He can't be there. Less than three hours after leaving the museum, the man is riding his motorcycle with his girlfriend on the back, and he runs his motorcycle straight into a tree and dies instantly. His girlfriend spends the next year in the hospital there is no name there's no actual date so it's hard to you know pinpoint and figure out exactly when this happened but they swear that this happened after this the warrens put a sign on the case warning people not to touch the glass this museum along with annabelle is currently run by the warren's son-in-law tony spera everything was left to judy and tony when the warrens had passed The museum is actually currently closed right now because there were some zoning issues and they were looking into how to fix those. But once those get fixed, hopefully the um, museum will be back open, even if they have to find a different spot. So we know the story behind Annabelle now. We know what Annabelle has done. We know where she came from and what the true story is. So what about all the Annabelle movies? We know that that little bit in the beginning of The Conjuring and a little bit of the other stuff is real. We know that what had really happened and what hadn't happened in that. But what about everything else? Is there any truth to any of those? If you go to Annabelle Creation, which is the second Annabelle movie, but it is the prelude to these Annabelle movies it is the one that is actually first it tells the backstory of the doll and how the doll was created how it became possessed and known as a haunted doll by a child this doll was possessed by a child and then later possessed by a, an older woman in her 20s and this movie kind of furthers the plot line and clears up the Annabelle Higgins Annabelle Mullins twist The only possible truth in this movie is that the young Annabelle Higgins was tragically killed in a car accident. Her parents had asked for her to be returned to them and the father makes this doll. He's a doll maker. And so he makes this doll that they believe houses her spirit because they'd asked for her spirit to come back. They notice that this doll is moving around and is talking And they believe that this doll is being manipulated by her spirit. But they find out that it's not. It's actually a demon that's pretending to be her spirit. When they realize that, they try to lock it away. But this group of orphans come to stay at this house. And one of them finds the doll. So in the end, one of them becomes possessed by this doll. She changes her name to Annabelle. And becomes Annabelle Mullins when she gets adopted by this other family and then her family her parents live next door to the couple that end up with the doll later on that's how the doll ends up getting possessed by Annabelle Mullins because Annabelle Mullins kills her parents and then breaks into this other couple's house where she ends up being killed And her blood gets in the doll. So now it's possessed by both Annabelle's. I'm sorry, I hope you hadn't seen those movies, but that's kind of the gist of how all of that happens. You would never guess by looking at a Raggedy Ann doll that it was ever terrifying and that it would ever inspire this kind of habit-wreaking and, you know, this type of movie that this that Annabelle has inspired that doll that was made for Annabelle was actually perfect for what they did with it there was a second most prominent artifact in the movie it was the white wedding dress now in the movie the white wedding dress was worn by a bride who had murdered her groom and had an exorcism The story behind this dress was that whoever wore the dress would kill her fiance. Now, Tony Spera, remember the Warren's son-in-law who now runs the museum and takes care of the family business. He was also trained by Ed Warren. He says that this is completely fabricated, that this story was fabricated for the movie. The real story behind the dress Is creepy, but it is very reminiscent of a lot of other tales. The tale of the White Lady of Union Graveyard off of Route 59. So this is very similar to some other urban legends that I've heard, but it has some twists. And it actually has people's names that have seen this like there is a name in here that of a man who actually says that he's seen this that he had something happen and police officers that have come forward with this so this is a very interesting story with the actual gown that they have in the museum So the gown is supposed to come from the White Lady of Union Graveyard. Union Graveyard is a graveyard in Connecticut that is not far from the Warren's house, which makes sense that they would have investigated this because this is a very well-known haunted area. So there are several stories of This white lady being seen, especially at night, just like a lot of other urban legends, she's seen walking around the road, sometimes manifesting in cars, and sometimes being solid enough to be hit by cars. Now that one's a new one. I had never heard of that in other urban legends, so she will sometimes manifest suddenly in the middle of the road. Solid enough that she can be hit by a car, but when emergency vehicles get there, there's no body. There's a car with damage, but no injured person in the road or anywhere in the vicinity. So we do have one person who has made claims and has come forward on several other websites and actual news sites. Uh, I read two or three different news sites where he actually used his name and had given interviews. So Rod Vasey said that he was driving by the cemetery around 1 a.m. when he saw the white lady. He saw a woman walking along the road so he started kind of tapping his brakes because you know there's a woman walking along the side of the road and he doesn't want to hit this woman he feels a tap on his shoulder now he's driving in his vehicle at one o'clock in the morning by himself and he feels a tap on his shoulder he looks over and there is a man in his passenger seat wearing 60s type clothing. So I'm sorry, I would have slammed on my brakes at that point and probably jumped out of my car while it was still rolling. But no, he he kind of slowed down, but just as quickly as he saw the man, he looked away, he looks back, the guy's gone. He gets to the bottom of the hill where the white lady was. She manifests into his car and went right through him just kind of manifested in his car and went through him and was gone. Yeah that sounds really creepy. I don't know. I think I would have gotten out of there and I would have found a different route to drive home from from then on. There are other stories of people hitting her with a car like I said but there are stories of actual police officers hitting this woman this woman who just manifests in the road in front of them so solid that this police officer just hits her with their car dents the car damages the police car and when they stop there is nobody there they request police backup. They request fire and rescue, ambulance, and everything. They search everywhere around there. They can't find anybody who's hurt. Apparently, Union Cemetery is known as one of the most haunted cemeteries ever. It is also, like I said, very close to where the Warrens live. It has all kinds of different stories connected to it. But the White Lady is one of the biggest stories. It's the one that gets the most reports. The problem with this artifact that I have is I did a lot of research on this. And I tried to find where this White Lady came from, who she was, and there were some articles that talked about suspicions. A couple of names that they thought she possibly could have been. But nobody knew for sure who this white lady was. The only thing they know is that she comes from this graveyard from Union Cemetery. So if she doesn't have a name, nobody knows for sure who she is which grave she belongs to, and what her story is. How do Ed and Lorraine Warren have a dress that supposedly belongs to her and is haunted in their museum? So it doesn't make any sense to me. My guess is they have a dress that represents her story, but that isn't an actual haunted artifact that they have in the museum that is there because it's dangerous and it's haunted and it needed to be taken away from the public. It's there so that when people come in, they can tell the story of Union Cemetery. So that is one of the problems I have with some of the stuff that they claim is in their museum. So, there is another artifact that's in the movie, Annabelle Comes Home, and it is the mourning bracelet. This bracelet in the movie, Daniela uses to contact her dad. She puts a picture of her dad in it, and her dad appears to her. So, this bracelet doesn't actually exist But it is based on a set of pearls that is in the artifacts room. So these pearls were given to a woman. When she put them on, she felt like she was being strangled to death. So they're actually cursed pearls. So she puts these on. She feels like she's being strangled. She can't get them off. And it actually took people that were around her to pull the pearls off of her. That's why the Warrens supposedly have these in their Museum. Now, another problem again, there are no details as to where these pearls came from. There's no name of the woman that had them on. There's no place where they came from, no witnesses, nothing. And I know this, this is probably to protect the person that they came from, but it also prevents any type of research being done on the artifact. So there is nothing to say that this artifact isn't just a string of pearls that they put there to tell a story but there is the cursed pearls. So in the movie there was a television that showed the future and Daniela looked into this the first time and she became frozen. She was watching this television like she was sucked into this television. As she was watching she kept noticing that things were happening that weren't actually happening. And then she realized that these things were happening and then a few seconds later they would happen. So this television was telling her the future just a few seconds in advance. She started using this television to help her while she was in the museum. So there's no such thing as a tel- this television in the artifacts room. But, Spira believes that this was based on the scrying mirror. So, there is a mirror that is in the museum that is said that a man had used it as a scrying mirror to try and contact a dead relative. The story is that he sat in a dark room with nothing but a red light for two weeks so for two weeks, he sat in this room in front of this mirror. The room was dark and he just had a red light on. He used it to try and scribe for his dead relative. So he sat in front of it, stared into this mirror, and he called for his dead relative. He never saw his family member, but he did start seeing ugly, twisted faces in the mirror And this scared him to the point that he was sent to a mental institution. His family gave the mirror to the Warrens. So again, there's no names mentioned in this story of this mirror. And, well, as a therapist with my background and training, I can say that there are several things that could have happened here. For one thing, this man supposedly, if he really did sit in this dark room, For two weeks, staring into this mirror, first I want to ask, was he eating and drinking? Because if he wasn't getting enough to drink, dehydration can cause you to hallucinate. So that could be part of it. Secondly, you have matrixing. So the shadows on the mirror could be you know, playing tricks in his mind because our human brain wants to make sense of patterns that we see. Now, I want to believe I am a skeptical believer. I want to see proof and I want that proof to be something that I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt really is something. And so if he's staring into this dark mirror, and he's seeing these shadows and his mind is trying to make sense of these shadows his mind starts making these faces out of these shadows and in his mind you know his mind's in this dark place because this relative's death and so these shadows start becoming these twisted creepy type um faces then that could be what was going on Another thing is we don't know the mental health of this individual. So if this individual was actually mentally unstable, then he could be experiencing a psychotic break. And so that could be causing him to hear things, see things. So he could be actively hallucinating at this point and it's not actually... Any type of supernatural thing that's happening in this mirror, it's all um, his mental health. Or, you know, there really could have been a supernatural thing happening in this mirror. He really could have been contacting something from the other side that was evil rather than his dead relative. But the fact that it says that he was just seeing ugly twisted faces in the mirror rather than his dead relative and not that you know he was having these shadow figures coming out of the mirror or seeing these things around him they were all just in the mirror it makes me think that it was more something like matrixing maybe dehydration things like that that he was expecting to see something in the mirror so his mind was playing tricks on him so another artifact that was in the mi- in the movie was an organ that Daniela played. A man appeared beside her. So this organ is actually in the artifacts room. Now, a man doesn't appear beside you when you play this organ, but there's actually a history behind this organ in the artifacts room. And so the Reverend Ellicum Phelps had died in Stratford, Connecticut, and there was no one to claim his belongings and property. And the house was notorious for being haunted in that area. So everybody said that his house was haunted, and this man dies in this haunted house. His body's taken away, and there's nobody to claim the property. It just sits there. All of his stuff's in there. People start looting it, and so the city steps in and takes over because there's they can't find anybody that is going to step in and take claim over his property. And so they contact Ed Warren and ask him if he would like this organ. And he eagerly agrees that, yes, he would like this organ. He knows that this is a notoriously haunted house But he doesn't know if there's anything attached to this organ. So he gets the organ. He brings it to his museum. And he places it in the museum. Because he doesn't have any place else to put it. He doesn't know if there's anything attached. He hasn't even had a chance to really look at the organ. Explore it. Figure out if there's anything going on. He just has a spot in there that he can put it. And there's no other spot in his house that he can put it. So, he places it in the museum. After a few days, they start waking up at night hearing organ music playing. And they think somebody's broken into the museum. So, on three different occasions, they jump out of bed and they run outside to check the museum to make sure nobody's broken in. And they find it perfectly fine. Like, you know, there's nothing out of place. So... It finally has a priest come in and bless the museum, which he does this regularly anyway. This is part of his regular routine, but he has a priest come early and bless the museum, and the organ stops playing. And the organ never plays again on its own. But that tells him that something's attached to this organ, or was attached to this organ. So... There is a story that, you know, we can trace back at least a little bit. And there was something going on there. So the movie kind of blew it up a little bit and went from an organ that played by itself to when you played the organ, a man appeared. As for the other artifacts in the movie, they didn't really exist in this occult museum. The Feely Mealy game, the werewolf paw, the samurai suit... These were all just made up for the movie to make them more exciting. But in my opinion, real life can be scary enough. You just have to be patient enough to let it play out. Unfortunately, movies can't be that patient. Maybe the occult museum was too boring for them. So they had to have these big, grandiose really really scary type this is going to manifest and kill you things so they tried to really play it up so this is the story of Annabelle the doll and how these movies kind of don't really tie in to the real story of Annabelle the doll but what truth there is to the real story in these movies So I hope that you will tune in next time when we talk about some more movies. Bye.